You're listening to a Calvary and Adults podcast, the ministry out of Calvary Baptist Church in Oshawa, Ontario, Canada. Calvary and Adults is a midweek worship service gathering of those in the Durham region who are between the ages of 18 and 30. We love the Lord, proclaim His Word, and celebrate His goodness. This podcast series is the sermons from Thursday evenings. In today's episode, Matthew Jones looks at the topic of discernment. Let's listen now to Matt's sermon, Fallacy Christianity, Discerning the Many from the Few. Pastor Nick has tasked me with teaching on fallacy Christianity, how to discern between the many and the few. In 1848, an event took place in the United States that took the world by storm. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? This was the most major event, 1848. Anybody? Okay. This was the gold rush. The gold rush was launched in 1848 by a man named James Marshall when he was on a piece of land and he was setting up a business. He was trying to build a business for this other individual and he found gold. He struck gold. And gold seekers set out from all over the world, all over the U.S., as far as the East Coast, making their way to California. And they came all the way from over the world, Latin America, Europe, Australia, China, all for the promise of what gold holds, wealth, prosperity, economic freedom, friends in high places, power. All these people who would become known as the 49ers, so if you're a football fan in here, you know where the football team got their their name from. They became known as the 49ers. They made their way to get their share of this treasure, and some quickly realized that not everything that looked like gold was actually gold. Few people made it rich by finding the real deal, but many more found what became known as fool's gold. Fool's gold looked very much like gold. It had a similar glitter. It held the same promise of of health and happiness and success, but when fool's gold was put under the test, it was always proved to come up short and in no way could compete with the real deal. It didn't hold the exclusive value as real gold. It took discernment to distinguish real from fool's gold. So tests were developed, and miners depended on those tests as they were vitally important for their livelihood and for their future. Like many of the gold rush miners, we too can fall prey to fool's gold. For our purposes, fool's gold is false religion, even a false Christianity. One that glitters from a distance the same way as the real. One that makes the same promises of hope and and eternal life as the real. But when put under the right test, it always comes up short. And in fact, does not have the same authority or same conditions or same exclusive terms as the one true faith. And Jesus teaches bluntly and in stunning fashion on this issue. We find in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching us on how to discern any kind of false religion, including false Christianity, from the only true one that is prescribed by him. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 13. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 13. This is Jesus talking here. 
He begins in verse 13, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. If we are not actively discerning whether we are in the truth, or if we are actually swimming along in our cultural wave of pluralism, we may find ourselves outside of the true religion and outside of Christ. And what Jesus is teaching here is that this happens far too often among professing Christians. They go about their lives believing they are in a relationship with Christ, and sadly, it's all superficial. But when the time comes that they find out that they're not actually in the faith, it's too late. Jesus himself declares them condemned, unfit for his kingdom, and casts them into hell. My brothers and sisters, we need to pay very close attention to Jesus here. We really need to understand what he is saying because many of us in this room could be going about our days thinking that we're all good with God. But the reality is, reality is we have passed through a, a wide gate and are on a broad road that is leading us nowhere else other than destruction. Jesus is teaching this message in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest, wisest, and most famous sermon of all time. The Sermon on the Mount really unpacks the truth of the religiously pluralistic society that we live in. Religious pluralism says that all religions matter. They can all be true. They can all lead to God. They can all lead to heaven. There are many ways to God. And Jesus here says, Absolutely not. At the moment of Jesus teaching his sermon, there was a multitude gathered around him. People from all over, everywhere were gathered around him, including Pharisees and, and the religious tradition that they upheld. 
Sadducees were there and scribes were there. These are people who were very knowledgeable in the things of God, or so they thought. Their religion was actually all about self-effort, and they thought that that pleased God. The common thread of every religion of the world, except for Christianity, is human achievement. Every world religion is based on a system that you can work your way to God. And Jesus here in Matthew chapters 5 to 7 is calling out that fallacy directly. What we're looking at here is the showdown between human achievement versus divine accomplishment. Works-based religion versus grace-based. And so Jesus looks at the crowd that's in front of him. He takes every major category of their works-based religion, a religion that gives billions of people great comfort, even to this day, this moment that I'm standing in front of you here. He takes, he takes that and he shatters that fallacy with truth here in chapter 7, verses 13 to 27. And he does so describing four major contrasts between fool's religion and the real thing. The four contrasts are two ways, Two trees, two claims, and two builders. So let's take a look at these. The first one, two ways. Look back in your Bibles at Matthew 7, at verse 13. Jesus commands, enter through the narrow gate. You need to note this in your, in your Bibles. Jesus commands how to enter the kingdom of God. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. So here we have the contrast of the two ways. On those two ways, there are two gates, there's two roads, two crowds, and two destinations. We see that there in these verses. And on these two opposing ways, take note of the way of the many, and take note of the way of the few. We're going to keep coming back to that. These ways may look the same at first. These are both religious ways. These ways both promise heaven, but only one actually goes there. The other gate the other road, the other crowd, the other destination leads to destruction. We see very similar language used elsewhere in God's word. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, Moses here is declaring to the Israelites, he says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. The prophet Jeremiah, in his book, chapter 21, verse 8, he says, But tell this people, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am setting before you the way of life and the way of death. And here Jesus echoes, enter through the narrow gate. Choose life. God lays this out right in front of our faces. The choice is right there to choose life, but many don't. Why? Well, the narrow gate is too narrow for comfort for most people. It's restrictive. It in no way permits what Jesus prohibits, and therefore only a few find it. 
The narrow road opened to up to persecution and is the way of opposition. But for many, the eternal life promise at the end of that road is not a great enough prize to endure what real deal genuine followers of, of Christ must endure in this life to attain that prize. Even though in the book of Acts we read the account of Paul and, and Barnabas, they're planting churches and they're making disciples and then they decide to go on a tour, touring back around these churches that they had planted earlier to check in on the disciples there. And picking it up in Acts chapter 14, verses 22, it says right there, strengthening the disciples, so this is, this is talking about Paul and Barnabas, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Why is the gate that leads to life so narrow and difficult? Why is it only a few find it? Because you have to completely deny yourself to fit through. We cannot bring along any bit of baggage with us. This is like being at an airport. You're making your way to the gate that leads to the plane. It's going to get you to your destination. And at the security checkpoint, they tell you not only can you not check a bag, but you can't bring a carry-on with you either. The only thing getting through this gate is, is you. All your baggage has got to go. Why is the gate that leads to life so narrow and difficult? Why is it only a few find it? Because every bit of righteousness that we think that we have that permits us to see heaven has to be shed off before we can go through this gate. Jesus does not allow us to bring along our, our self-centered baggage with us. The narrow gate and road is one of difficulty for the kind of person that desires autonomy. Jesus does not permit us to bring along our, our baggage of control. He, did not, he does not permit the kind of person that wants their religion, yes, even their Christianity, to be on their own terms. So they choose the wide gate and the broad road. The broad road is inviting, and it accommodates the much larger crowd and, and all the baggage that comes with it. There are many more on that road. There are many more professing Christians actually on the broad road. In their hearts, they buy into the cancel culture and they cancel right out of God's word. In John 14, 6, Jesus' declaration, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This kind of person is like, no, no, no. There has to be another way. There has to be another truth. There has to be another life, one that will allow me to be me. One that will allow me to do me. Allow me to seek the things that I want to seek. Pursue the things that I want to pursue. Think the way I want to think. Talk the way that I want to talk. There must be another way. Oh, there it is. I see it. It's glittering off over in the distance over there. Looks like they got a big majority on that road over there. They can't all be wrong. I'm going to go swim in that pool. Going to the narrow gate is very difficult because of great opposition. Opposition from human pride. Opposition from our, our natural love of sin. Opposition of Satan and the world and his control. All of these 
opposing forces battle against us in the pursuit of entering the kingdom of God through the narrow gate. And because of this opposition, many more will attempt to find an alternative route to God. They will try to get there through man-made rules and regulations, through false religion, or through self-effort. Our second major contrast in discerning fallacy Christianity from the real thing comes in the form of two trees. You see this in verses 15 to 20. Take a look at verse 15 with me. Two trees. Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging bulls. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. Sadly, there are many leaders, teachers, preachers, pastors who are only too willing to feed in the people's intolerance of sound doctrine. You know, these are the kinds of leaders in the church that feed the many on what their itching ears want to hear, turning them away from hearing the truth and feeding them on the things that are deceiving, keeping them on the broad road. So Jesus continues his teaching in verse 15 here by instructing us to be on guard against false prophets, these kinds of leaders and teachers and preachers and pastors in the church. Who are they? They're ravaging wolves in sheep's clothing. That's what verse 15 says. What comes to mind for me is little Red Riding Hood. All that cute, sweet little girl wants to do is see her grandma. Goes to grandma's house, going to help out grandma who's not feeling well. Walks in the house. You know how the story goes. Grandma, why don't you sound like grandma? Why don't you look like grandma? Why don't you feel like grandma? There were certain signs that were there, but she was deceived by this ravaging wolf, and how did she end up? Dead. Destroyed. As Paul was leaving Ephesus, we read about his final words to the church there in Acts 20, verses 28 to 29. He says to them, says to the leaders there, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for three years I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. Do you hear this pastor's heart in the Apostle Paul? Three years, night and day, nonstop warning them that there will be people that truly don't have their best interest at heart. They care nothing about the state of your soul. And yet many disciples will be lured into following them and shipwrecking their faith. How will you recognize them? Verse 16 says, by their bad fruit. 
You see, so many who are enemies of the gospel, they hide their true identity. They've got the greatest poker faces and they don't show their cards right away. They conceal their deep-down hostility towards the gospel and and they pass themselves off as, as fellow believers. They talk the Christian talk, they walk the Christian walk. You put the real beside the fake. They're indistinguishable. And this is why Jesus says, why Jesus is so adamant that we learn how to discern sheep from wolves in sheep's clothing. And the example Jesus sets forth for us in verse 16 is useful. It's useful to us. He says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or, or figs from thistles? That's not, he's not just pulling something out of anywhere and just putting it in this teaching. It's, it's useful to us. You see, if you're, you're looking off into the distance and you see little black berries on a thorn bush from a distance, like a buckthorn bush, you can very well mistake that for a grapevine. But it's actually a thorny bush that will pierce you. Or imagine it's been a long day. You're at work. You're working hard. You're plowing through lunch. You're not even eating so that you can get your work done. You're just plowing through, and you reach, you reach the end of the day. You're hungry. You leave your office building or whatever it is, and you take a walk down the street, and in the distance, you see some flowers that are growing on a, on a certain, certain tree. It's actually on a thistle tree, but you may have been deceived into thinking that Figs were growing. But as you get closer and closer and you examine it up close, you're not deceived for very long. Jesus is saying what's true for the trees is true for people. The fruit of people will ultimately reveal what a person truly is. Their fruit being not just what they do, but what they say and they do. What are they like in their public and private life? Fruit is a good test because a good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Jesus' test will surely be proven true. My brothers and sisters, the, the results of the test may not necessarily come easily. They may not come or be revealed very quickly. They may not be right away. And so that is why we must be on guard at all times. You see, for people, some people living according to Christianity, it can be faked for, for a time, but the essence of what that person is will eventually reveal itself in what that person does. Moving right along, we've looked at two ways. We've looked at two trees, and now we arrive at our third contrast two claims. We see these two very different claims in verses 21 to 23. When we read these words that we're about to, we should quickly realize that these are the absolute most chilling words that ever came out of Jesus' mouth. These words of Jesus are the most heart-wrenching, the most cutting, the most raw, the most honest, the most frightening words that Jesus ever spoke. 
And he did not mince words here. So if we are going to look at anything in terms of discerning the real from the fake, then we need to give great pause on this section here. And that's why we're going to spend most of our time in this here. So please look at verse 21 with me. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, then we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do miracles in your name. Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. These words are the most chilling to ever leave Jesus' mouth because he declares that there are going to be more people cast into hell than those brought into heaven. Jesus is actually making that declaration about people involved in religious activity. He is saying this about people who associate themselves with Christianity. Jesus makes it very clear that there are many people that don't even realize they are not saved. It pains me to, to say this. It pains me to, 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 to teach on this. Dane asked me yesterday, Matt, how are you feeling about teaching tomorrow night? And I think, Dan, I just shook my, hood at, my head at him. I didn't, no words came out. I just shook my head because I'm in pain. I'm in pain. But this is exactly what Jesus is teaching here. There could be many people in this room tonight that don't realize they are not saved. These are people who have grown up in the church grown up around other Christians, grown up going to children's ministry, maybe youth ministry, now young adults. They've been around Christianity enough, been, been taught enough about it that they know how to speak all the jargon. They know how to hang out with Christians. They know how to pass as a Christian. They may even know theology well. It's all head knowledge. It's all academic, not heart-transforming. These are people who don't actually have the Spirit of God. They don't actually have saving faith. They don't have Jesus. They have all these other things, but they don't have Jesus himself. Rather, they have fallen for fool's gold. They fell for Religion purely for religion's sake rather than religion for relationship with Jesus. Their religion glitters, has a glittering promise of heaven, but upon a closer examination by the king of heaven, it proves to be a fake. And when they finally meet the gatekeeper to heaven face to face, he says to them bluntly, get away from me. Jesus says this will happen to many people. Only few find the real thing. These people are religious but lost, self-deceived. How does this happen? How can someone think they are in but they're really out? In my study of this, I've come across a few ways I believe this happens. 
The first of which is a superficial understanding of the gospel. So much is based on their own personal emotion rather than sound doctrine. Their understanding of the gospel is all about feelings. And false teachers help direct this with with teaching like, oh, just invite Jesus into your heart and you will be saved. And sadly, countless souls have been led straight to hell through that kind of teaching. The second way is people have a false sense of assurance. This kind of person believes that Jesus is all about them. It's all about you. They come across a teaching in the, in the Bible that is too hard to swallow and think, God can't possibly think like that. Jesus couldn't possibly have meant that when he said that. This is what I think God really meant, so that's what I'm going to do. A third way, another way this happens is a fixation on religious activity. I'm on the worship team. I'm at the church three nights a week, plus Sundays, Mondays, Wednesdays. Sometimes I throw Thursdays in there. God and I must be good. I'm at the church all the time. Which leads into another way people deceive themselves. The fourth way, they get into the good works comparison game. They associate themselves with some of the, the morality that Christianity teaches, but it stops there. I'm a relatively good person. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I don't do the things that so-and-so does. But you know the age-old question, well, how good is good enough? Where is the line? Where is the standard? Jesus was teaching this sermon to people who could run circles around us in religious activity. They were able to check every box there is for religious activity and morality. And Jesus demolished this kind of thinking, beginning with his famous beatitude teaching at the the beginning of the Sermon of the Mount in chapter 5, all the way up to this point, nearing the end of his sermon here in chapter 7. And now he's really driving it home. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? Didn't we go to church, sing songs, greet at the door, teach children, serve food to those in need? Didn't we do all sorts of miracles in your name? And his response is, I never knew you. Get away from me. So what do we do? How do we discern if we're the fake or the real thing? How do we discern if we are part of the the, the many, the majority that's being cast off and separated from God? Or if we are part of the few being fully embraced by him? The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, he instructs us to examine ourselves for this very reason, to see if we are actually in the true faith. We are to examine ourselves to see if we are really saved in a relationship with Jesus on his terms and his terms alone. 
Turn to 2 Corinthians 13.5. You could read this for yourselves. The Apostle Paul says right there, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? Many pastors and church leaders over the years have used the book of 1 John as a sort of am I in the truth test or am I in the faith test for self-examination and for the examination of their church. So we're going to go through this quickly. You have it on the sheet in front of you and it's going to be coming up on the screen behind me. First John, the am I in the faith or am I in the truth test? There's 10 ways to examine ourselves just in First John alone. Number one, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Fellowship is a major part of the test. Not just hanging out in close physical proximity, but real spiritual fellowship indicated by the willingness to know and to be known. To participate in the fullness of God's love for you and to participate in the fullness of God's love for you as expressed in the unity of the believers. Number two, 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is not about, you know, bad things that we may do here or there. Rather, this is about our whole nature, total depravity. Does your sin disgust you? Do you feel that way about your sin? Do you feel disgusted about it? Or are you okay just sitting in it? Or maybe not even acknowledging it to yourself or anybody else? Number three, 1 John 2, 3. This is how we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Do you strive for obedience to Jesus' commands? Do you even know his commandments? Not, not just what was delivered on the tablets to, to Moses, but all of Jesus' Jesus's commandments, all of them. And do you strive to keep them? Working out your salvation with fear and trembling, just as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippian church that we should be doing. Number four, 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So do you love this world with its unending glittering temptations? Or are you living as an exile? Because that's exactly what Christians are in this world. We are exiles. We are strangers. We are foreigners. We are aliens in this world. This place is not our home, so let's not fall in love with it. We are citizens of another world. Number five, 1 John 2, 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Listen, Jesus is God. This is distorted in, in churches around the world every single day. So how sound are you in your Christ Christology? your theology of who Jesus is. Jesus is God. Do you joyfully submit to his lordship over your life? Number six, 1 John 3, 2. 
Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So are you looking and longing for Christ? Does, does your heart ache to see him? Does your heart ache to meet him face to face? Does your heart cry out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come? Are you just dying to see him? Number seven, 1 John 3, 9. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin. So this doesn't mean that you are perfect and without sin. I sure am not. But the question is, are you practicing righteousness or are you okay with being a habitual sinner? Number eight, 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Do you love God's people? Do you love fellow believers more than you love your unbelieving family? We're commanded to do all the one another's. Pray for one another. Greet one another. Be kindly affectionate to one another. Give preference to one another. Live peacefully with each other. Encourage one another. Accept one another. Admonish and warn one another. Serve one another. Be patient with one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be kind to one another. Submit to one another. Be hospitable to one another. How are we doing in those areas? The ninth part of the test 1 John 4, 6, we are from God. Anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. Do you love hearing the word of God? Do you love to hear teaching and preaching? Do you love to listen to theological podcasts? If you don't like hearing from God, if you don't like teaching, if you don't like preaching, if you don't like listening to his word in whatever form his word is being proclaimed, it's an indicator that you may not be in the faith. You may not be saved. Number 10, 1 John 4, 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God God remains in him, and he in God. This is different than the other Christology that we talked about just a couple points ago. This one is, do you talk up Jesus? Or do you find an excuse for a way out every time an opportunity presents itself? Do you recognize divine appointments to tell others about Jesus? Or do you find Jesus and his teachings embarrassing? So you never share about Jesus with others, especially when an opportunity is right in front of your face. If we are not actively discerning what religion we are a part of, we may find ourselves outside of the one true faith.
Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount with a final contrast, using a parable to bring his point home. He contrasts two builders, a wise builder and a foolish builder. Take a look at Matthew 7, at verse 24 with me. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. Two builders, a wise one and a foolish one. They both heard the exact same words of Jesus, the exact same teaching from Jesus. They were both builders. We presume they both had the same tools, the same materials, because they both built the same kind of house. The same storm hits them both at the same time, and it's the storm that reveals the substance that distinguishes them. What distinguishes them is the different foundations they are built their houses on. One rock, one sand. When the storm came, one stands firm, tall, solid, unshaken, proven, and approved. But the other collapses with a great collapse, wiped out and destroyed. What are these foundations representing? The foundations in question here are the foundations of the gospel. And building your life on it versus the foundation of fallacy Christianity or any kind of fool's gold religion and building your life on it. Judgment will reveal the one true religion. So we need to make sure we are building our house, our very lives now, and the hope of the future on the solid rock of the gospel. What comes to your mind when you think of the gospel? What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news about the life and work of Jesus Christ. And in the book of Romans alone, the gospel is mentioned 60 times. 60. The book of Acts, if you read through it, it's actually majority gospel preaching. The apostles are going around, they're going out, and they're preaching the gospel. And we discover what the elements of the gospel are. You find nothing there about karma, nothing about a sacramental system, nothing about nirvana, nothing about reincarnation, nothing about feng shui or, or anything along any kind of lines like that. What you find is everything exclusive to Jesus Christ, his life and his work. 
The good news about the life and work of Jesus Christ is the gospel, and the gospel contains the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. We cannot disconnect ourselves from the Old Testament, because if we do, we are disconnecting ourselves from Christ. He is there. The gospel contains Jesus' sinless life, Jesus' substitutionary death, Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven, being seated at the right hand of the Father, and the gospel contains our necessity of confession, repentance, and faith. These are the true terms of the gospel, nothing more and nothing less. We enter through that narrow gate or we don't enter at all. A couple years ago, my wife and I took a very quick vacation up to Tobermory because we heard great things about a grotto that was, that's up there. So we made our way there, and we went to see this grotto, and if you go there, there's only two ways to get to the grotto. You either make your way down to the beach, and you swim your way into the cave, and then you're in this, this spectacular place, or you got to walk around this, this hiking path, unmarked, there's a small, tiny little hole and the ground at this point, and you figure out that, oh, that must be the other way, and if I could just squeeze myself through that hole, then I can get down to the grotto without having to get wet by swimming. Well, I don't know how to swim, so that way was automatically taken out of the picture. So we went to the hole. We found the hole. And I'm looking at this hole. And I went by, you know, that, that saying that circ circulates, as long as you can get your head through, you get the rest of your body through. So I attempted. And after some time, I did squeeze my way down through that hole. But I realized very quickly that my backpack could not come with me. The bag that I had with me, my camera, Canon. No. What's the other one, Jeanette? Nikon. Couldn't come with me. Had to stay at the top. Got rid of my baggage, squeezed my way through. Rebecca was pregnant with... Micah at the time, 10 months, not 10 months, two months earlier than nine, seven. Got pictures, pregnant, squeezed her through that hole. And when we got there, it was as spectacular as everybody had described it to us. It was worth squeezing through that hole. It was worth shedding off what we needed to shed off to get through that hole and see that grotto. It was the narrow gate that we chose. Likewise, for us to enter his glorious kingdom, Jesus commands that we enter through the narrow gate. So where are you? What gate have you passed through? What road are you on? Are you trying to get through the narrow gate while bringing along your own baggage? You'll never fit. Are you on the broad road? You, you took the wide gate? Well, you are not left without hope today. You have the opportunity to repent, to confess, and be saved. You have an opportunity to receive the promises of the real religion, the true faith, based on the sole terms of the gospel. But you'll first have to lay aside all hope in the promises of the fool's religion that is tempting you but you will not regret it.
So tonight, if you hear God's voice prompting you on, on any of this, do not harden your heart. Because right now, if you have breath in your lungs, the mere fact that you still have breath in your lungs right now means you have the opportunity to leave the path of the many and come join the path of the few. Come talk to one of us leaders after I close in prayer if that's you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you made a way for us to enter into your presence through the life and work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, forgive us for any time that we try to add anything to that. That we try to bring our own baggage along to please you. Thinking that we can get into heaven, that we can get into your presence, that we can experience you in this life in any other way than through the narrow gate, the narrow road, which is the gospel truth of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is the gate. I pray for anybody in here, God, that is trying to carry along all the baggage, trying to find an alternate route that is not the one that you prescribed. I pray that you would help them. I pray that you would speak to them. I pray that you would give them saving faith to believe in the gospel alone right now. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you live in the Durham region, we'd love to have you join us for our Thursday night gathering. For more information and registration links, check out the Facebook or Instagram pages at CalvaryBCOshawaYA or website www.calvary.on.ca. Thanks for listening today. Until next time, blessings.